Check out Unpacking Israeli History podcast. From the history of infamous terror groups, Hamas and Hezbollah, to the story of Nakba, to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from Season 6 each week. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and every Monday and Wednesday, I tell you stories about people I think were just swell, grand, the bees' knickers, the cat's knees, the heart's potatoes. With me today is my guest, Ren. Ren, on a scale of swell to grand, how are you doing? I would say I'm, um, well, actually, I'm still a little bit sad about the episode we recorded a few days ago, or that came out a few days ago. Mm-hmm. So I don't know where I am on the scale from swell to grand. I feel like I'm still oh. sitting with that. Okay. Um, but uh, but otherwise, I would say quite swell. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then there's Sophie, the producer. Wait, what did I call, decide to call you? The mad Me- wizard? No. Mean the, um, overlord. <laughs> the mean overlord. <laughs> um, hi, Sophie. How are you doing? Swell, grand, upset about Norway? Yeah. Upset about Norway, who murdered beloved walrus, who they named Freya. They named her and then they killed her so that rich people and their boats could be, you know, whatever. Like she was just lounging on piers and like being adorable. And then humans had to ruin it. And so they killed her and I'm mad about it. So fuck the Norwegian government. Agreed. That's what I was supposed to say, right? Yeah, I mean... I wanted you to say what you what was in your heart. What's in my heart um, is fuck the Norwegian government for <laughs> killing Freya. Justice for Freya. She was a yeah. legend. Ian is our audio engineer on Woman Did Our Music. Both are swell and grand, hopefully. I can't actually speak to how they're doing. But as people, uh, as adjectives I would describe them with, I would consider swell, grand, the heart's potatoes. This is part two of our two-part series on Roger Casement, the Irish humanitarian knight trader who brought down, helped bring down Leopold II and got hanged for his Guns for Irish People plan. Oh, that's the spoiler. Uh, but you should go back and listen, not you, Ren, but everyone else should go back and listen to part one because this won't make any sense if you haven't heard part one. So where we last left Roger Casement, he had just secured permission to go explore Leopold's Congo to figure out if the, all the rumors were true. And it's a, it's a fucking apocalypse. Mm-hmm. He'd been there before. 
right, uh, before it was Leopold's private kingdom, he saw, you know, he went to a town he had been to before that should have 40,000 people. There were 8,000 people left uh, with no trade, no canoes. Um, they were just enslaved. Uh, another village, they said that they had to go farther and farther every week to meet their quota. They were out there dying of exposure. They were getting eaten by animals. Um, if they were late, they'd get mutilated and murdered. And when they ran out of rubber vines, the entire town just fled. Um, he, he met them where they had fled to. You know, they came and talked to him because I think he had some personal connections with some of them. Mm-hmm. He he gets sick on this journey, but he spends a lot of time sick. It just like kind of doesn't bother him, I think. I mean, I, I'm sure it bothers him, but like he does what he continues to do. You know, he turns 39 on this trip uh, just to get a sense of where he's at in his life at this point. Um, and when he first starts meeting people and they're telling him all this awful shit, he's like, maybe this is exaggerated. And then soon he's like, no, no, this is not. There's a town of 5,000 people. It's not 352 people. Uh, they were killed outright, or a lot of them were worked until their immune systems failed them. One of the big things that Leopold claimed about all the death was that it was an outbreak of sleeping sickness, which is a tropical disease. Um, but it, it wasn't. It wasn't that. But a lot of people were dying of sickness because their immune systems were failing them. Um, and like... What a dark line. He goes around and uses what authority can to set children free from prisons. Everywhere he goes, he tries to be like, I'm kind of in charge a little bit. you got to stop at least doing that thing, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't know. There's just more bad stuff. Um, and rumor gets around that he's actually trying to make shit better once he starts setting children free because... These people were not used to a lot of white people who are trying to make things better. So more and more people come to talk to him and they show him uh, the ways in which they've been wounded and mutilated and stuff. Um, and he, he gathers up a ton of information for this report. And then he like practically runs out of the area. He gets out as fast as he can uh, because he feels so urgent to get it done. And also a little bit, I wonder whether he's like, are they going to let me get away with this? They keep killing everyone who does this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I don't know. That's that's my that's an inference on my part. But he gets out as fast as he can. He stays up all night writing his report. This is before he doesn't go back to Europe. He just gets back to the coast. Um, stays up all night writing the report. He writes for days, and then he sends. Once again, he's still like a good bureaucrat. He sends letters to the Free State officials, being like, "Please investigate the following crimes." And it's just like a list of every single crime that he had evidence of and had encountered. Yeah. Um, And then he also sends his initial report to England. Um, And the people in England who are in charge of his report, they're supposed to give it to the rest of like the Berlin people. This is still his preliminary report. And they they gut it. They well, they don't gut it. They don't change much about it, except they take out all of the names and they replace them all with like, you know, if you read like old timey books, it's like, and then I ran across X and it's like X and a dash. Have you you seen this? Like the naming convention? Like like they it's like a censoring thing? Yeah, it's like, like I feel like a lot of 19th century books that I read for fun will have like, and then I ran across Gentleman M, and it's like M dash. Oh, it's like I know what you're talking about, yeah. Replacing the names with code. Yeah. And they do that, but there's so many people in his book that it goes like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then it's like A, A, B, B, and then it's like A, C, D, F is the name of someone or whatever. And it's just mm. like illegible. 
uh, to a lay reader who isn't keeping very, very careful attention. Um, so it gets ignored. The Berlin signatories, uh, the people who had agreed to carve up Africa, ignore it. It's in their best interest to ignore it anyway. Um, in Brussels, everyone makes fun of it. It's, it's uh, British anti-Belgian propaganda. He heads back to London to write the rest of his report. And then while he and then he gets back and he talks to the press and then he fucks a guy with a seven inch cock and writes about it in his diary. Um, and then the government keeps delaying their request for the finished report because the capitalists in England don't want the finished report. Uh, okay. And there's like yeah. specific surname people, sir so and so, who mm -hmm. just are like, don't fucking write that report. Don't don't ask for it. So they need more public outcry. And the newly formed Congo Reform Association uh, works at it. And eventually the report gets requested. He writes the report and slowly the sort of lumbering wheels of almost justice get set into motion. Uh, the powers of Europe are like, oh, really, actually, this is maybe a bit too far. Um, Belgium sets up an independent inquiry and confirm Casement's report. And in 1908, Leopold II is forced to relinquish the Congo. He didn't give it to the Congo, which is what would naturally happen with one mm. ceased controlling a country. He gives yeah. it to Belgium um, because Europe is a place of monsters. And Leopold also burned all of his fucking records. Mm. So the world will probably never know the true extent to his monstrosity. Um, just a, And there's like people saying like, oh, the, the ovens were burning for days. Um, as he trashed all of his records. Belgium got the Congo, continued to fuck it over for decades, which is a story we don't have time to get into. But Leopold is a fucking monster, and this is still good that he got stopped. Um, and then Leopold died a year later, and I can't figure out how the fuck he died. Do you know how he died? Do either of you know how he died? Every source no. that I find... To be fair, I didn't go and buy a biography of King Leopold to write an S uh, or to write a thing about someone else but i skimmed a ton of books and i skimmed a ton of articles i found out how his kid died in open heart surgery i found out how his dad died i completely forget because it was irrelevant to the story um i don't know how king leopold died but he died i mean he's old so he just died i don't know mm -hmm. um i like to think because he was oh and then but the cool part is that when he died at least according to the bbc reports um when he died people his own people booed him at his funeral Incredible. Um, I think yeah. it I yeah. think it I think it was pneumonia based on search. I see okay. pneumonia in three separate articles. We could all be okay, lying. Well now I just feel like I'm a no, I'm now I just feel like a bad researcher because okay, yep. Let's go with pneumonia. So he gets booed at his funeral. Uh <laughs> it's probable that he doesn't get booed for being like one of the worst people to have ever been born, but instead because like by the end of his life, he um he started dating a 16-year-old sex worker and uh, married her and um, disinherited his daughters and then gave his entire fortune to the, the teenage sex worker, who might not have been teenage at that point, I don't know, the, the, um, who was basically just fucking um, gold digging uh, very effectively. And so she inherits all of his money and then marries the pimp who introduced her to Leopold. Um, I think that's why he got booed at his funeral. But I like to think it's because he was one of the worst monsters in all of history. That's not 
even what's so amazing, right? Because you're like, okay, Caseman did this thing, right? They did this amazing thing. And that is the, we're, we're not done with Caseman because he did an awful lot more. All right. So Caseman, he has successfully stopped Leopold or been a large part of a multi, a, a huge movement, right? But um, an important part of it. I'm not trying to downplay him, but I'm also not trying to say he is the person who stopped Leopold, right? Totally, um, yeah. And maybe because he's seen some of the worst aspects of colonialism up in front, it's around this time he gets really into being Irish. And he, in 1904, he joins the Gaelic League, the Conrad Nagelga, um, which is an organization that fights for the preservation of the Irish language. And one of the, Ren knows more about the thing that I'm now talking about than I do. But, <laughs> but it's it's possible that this organization, which um, which he didn't start, right? But it's, it's, it's spearheaded the movement that, as far as I can tell, saved the language from extinction. In the first decade of the 19th century, 45% of Irish people grew up speaking Irish. By the last decade of the 19th century, it was 3.5% of people were speaking Irish as their first language. Yeah. So he, he worked in, in Ulster in Northern Ireland, uh, where he was more or less from. And he basically was trying to help convince fellow Protestants that the Irish language mattered. And cool. Yeah, which is yeah. You know, rarer. Um, but, but I do feel like you do see, um, and I don't know if I would be able to come up with specific examples, mm-hmm. but you do see a lot of like Anglo-Irish and Irish Protestants really sort of um, being important players in, in um, like fighting to free Ireland from the English. Like he's definitely not the only one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things that I kind of like, I came across more and more yeah. because I had, you know, my family is um, is Irish Catholic. And so you kind of have this this narrative that Ireland is the loyalist Protestants and the, you know, uh, nationalist or Republican Catholics, right? And it, yeah. it does seem like it's way messier than that, than what people, and like more of the Protestants were actually down with a free Ireland. Um, or at least there were like some notable ones who just like had a good analysis and were, you know, okay, we're down to throw down. Yeah. yeah. But. And so and, and when I say fellow Protestants that he was off trying to teach, it's like it's hard to it seems like he was not actually personally convinced one way or the other between Protestantism and Catholicism. Um, and but also it's like this is like what the histories want to talk about. Right. Because like yeah. everyone's invested in having him be their guy, you know. Or having him not be their guy if they think he's yeah. a dirty traitor or, like, had too much gay sex or whatever. And I don't know. I think he was kind of agnostic on spiritual matters. Um, it, not There was no part of him that was atheist, but in terms between, between Protestantism and, and yeah. Catholicism. Either way, what he is not confused about is that he cares about Irish. Um, and And while he's working for it, it helps that at this point he is... Britain's and if not maybe the world's most prominent human human rights activist at this point mm-hmm. uh, because of the shit that he just managed to do. Um, and he, as far as I can tell, lives in a way that proves this. I keep kind of wanting to find the like, yeah, but he was actually, I keep wanting to find that he like wasn't quite as nice as everyone says he was. Yeah. Everyone says he was this nice. The only thing they argue about is whether or not it made him an, a bad person for being so nice. Like he was either a fool or a saint. Mm, okay. But no one was questioning that he like, he he was not rich. He had no capital assets, no inherited yeah. wealth. 
Um, he lived off his civil servant salary. He also hated landlords and shit. I, I tried to like pigeonhole, figure out whether he identifies socialist or whatever. I didn't. Answer. Yeah. I, I don't have an answer to that. I do know he hated landlords, which is cool. Well, landlords and if he's if he's getting into Irish nationalism, the role of the landlord in in Ireland is like this very specific, okay thing, right? Because there were um, during colonization, and I talk a little bit about this. I have this whole little potato shtick because you like to uh-huh. be sponsored by the concept of potatoes. Mm-hmm. But um, there was like a huge amount of expropriation of land in Ireland during yeah. before, during, and after um, Cromwell's conquest, mm-hmm. and so. Um, there's this long history of people getting evicted from their land by these large, like, English ruling class um, landholders, right? Okay. So there's this long history of eviction. It happened during the famine. It happened before. It happened after. Okay. So I think of landlords as a specifically. They're they're terrible everywhere, um, but but they were a specific powerful group within Ireland that was fucking people over. Ah, uh, okay. That so, makes a lot of yeah. sense. Yeah. No, it's good that okay, yeah. Like, so I'm trying to figure out how to how to picture him, and um, so he's living off his salary. He does not live off of capital assets. I think basically everyone else in his field it made their money by being crooked, you know, made their money by setting up a little something on the side in the places they were colonizing or whatever. Um, because the salary was was not great. I tried to run it through calculators. It's very hard to like calculate like English pounds in 1870 to uh, or yeah. 1885 to U.S. dollars now. But like he he was not doing great, but he was doing better than a lot of the people around him in Ireland. And so he does shit like buy cows for random families. Like he'll talk to a family and they'll be like, yeah, we're kind of starving to death. And it's like, wouldn't it be better if you had like a cow and you could have some milk? And they're like, it would be better. And he's like, that makes yeah. sense. So he leaves and he goes, buys them a cow. He doesn't even go back and bring them the cow himself because he's not there to, like, look cool, you know? Yeah. Um, well, that's okay. So then mm-hmm. we have another tie-in. I'm going to grab oh, my potato good. fact sheet. All right. All right. Because I think that people think of Irish cuisine and they think of the potato, which, of mm-hmm. course, is a product of the so-called Colombian exchange from from uh, regions like Peru, northern South America, actually, mm-hmm. like a very... Horrific and genocidal conquest of the Americas, but potatoes get imported to Ireland. Um, but they're there to feed people because the Irish were originally cattle herders who mostly ate meat and dairy. Okay. And the British came in and saw this herding lifestyle as really lazy uh-huh. and wanted to. Let me see what I have here. So they. Um, I made. They I, they I could, was like. Please, yeah. yeah. Ren came prepared. I'm very excited about this. I did okay. come prepared. I'm like, no, I'm very excited. Not a, I'm not a great off the cuff person, so I wrote it all down. Yeah, yeah. Um, even when it's like stuff I know. Yeah. So the so the British came in and they were like these lazy Irish people who are like pushing their cows around. We have to turn them into farmers. Mm-hmm. And so in the 16th and 17th century, British invaders stole tens of thousands of heads of cattle in an attempt to starve the Irish out. Okay. Um, and they thought if they could turn them into farmers, they'd have less time for activities like rebelling against the English. Okay. Right? Because is so this cow- like basically like if you have a cow, you don't need to plant any potatoes and you don't even need to own land. You can kind of just like wander around and hang out with your cow? I think so. I don't that really like fully cool understand life. like the like how nomadic Irish people mm-hmm. were before colonization. But okay. I do know they were herders, right? Okay. They mostly ate meat and dairy with a little bit of vegetables. Yeah. Um, and then it was when the British came in that um, that there was a strong push to turn turn Irish folks into farmers. 
Okay. And then the potato becomes really useful because it's an easy crop to grow and it grows underground. And one thing that Cromwell does when he comes in um, is he burns a bunch of crops, but it's really mm-hmm. hard to burn crops that are underground. So the potato ah. um, is still able to be harvested. So, um, okay. so it's interesting that casement is buying cows for people because probably casement was just like, they need a cow, but there right. is this right. strong tie in to, to like earlier food ways on right. the right. island. Yeah. But I wouldn't so. put it past him with every, cause he's obsessed with Irish history. Like people like when they make That's fun true. of him. Yeah. If he's like, Deep into the Irish language and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And and people are like, like literally the people who don't like him are like, he's obsessed with Irish history, basically mythology. He's just, he thinks he's living in Irish mythology. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. So that like that, his cow thing maybe, even more. I mean, the cow thing, if yeah. you want to talk about Irish mythology, which mm-hmm. I'm not really going to very much, but oh, no. the, cow, okay. the cow comes up over and over again. Oh, really? I could, but I'm not. I don't feel like I know enough, but but the cow is very important. Like, there's okay. one of the most famous um, Irish mythological stories, which um, I would say that most of the people in it are not cool people who mm-hmm. did not do cool stuff. <laughs> They're like uh, very complicated and sometimes bad mythological figures. Um, yeah. But it's the cattle raid of Cooley, which is all about stealing cows. So, yeah, cool. I can see him being really into cows. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I like this. Um, yeah, no, we're, we're just going to decide. We're going to write the since, since so much about him is mythologized and he was also yeah. into mythology, I think he's actually would be okay with being mythologized. So he bought cows. You've heard it here first, or maybe you've heard it from other people too who've come to the same conclusions. Yeah. This is why he bought people cows. He also, um, he he rides third class on trains. Uh, his friends make fun of him for always giving away money to every beggar he saw. And they say things that he, like he is buying smiles at a penny a piece. And they like say this as if he's going to like feel bad about it. And so he's just like, yeah, that makes sense. He refuses all luxuries for himself, sex not being a luxury. Um, uh, I mean, especially in the context of, uh, you know, having to be secretly homosexual or whatever. Um, and he saves up money to offer prizes in schools for the study of the Irish language. Um, and he he organizes, it's like, in amongst all of this other stuff, I feel like this is such an this is an equally important part of anti-colonial struggle as like getting guns for people, right? Mm-hmm. Is he's organizing Irish gatherings for Gaelic songs and dances, um, and his friend refers to him as as happiest during such moments when he's like mm-hmm. just like sitting back and watching the kids like listen to Irish music and dance, you know? Yeah. He starts raising money. Uh, he uses his international connections to raise money for. Irish kids in school, basically, like like Brazil sends a thousand pounds, which is uh, like a hundred thousand pounds or something. They send a lot of money um, to help feed Irish kids who can't afford mm-hmm. fucking food, you know. Um, and in 1905, Sinn Fein is founded, uh, an Irish Republican Party that wants Ireland as a republic. Imagine living in a country where Republican means wants a republic. Mm-hmm. Um, he joins right off. He is uh, one of the first people to join this. Um, he's still a British civil servant, but whatever. Fuck it. I'm joining Sinn Féin. Because of his position, when he wrote about Irish nationalism, he writes about it mostly anonymously. Um, and and he writes about independence anonymously for various newspapers. He calls himself the leprechaun of Irish politics. I think because he was, like, evasive, elusive, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So let's talk about potatoes, because we're switching to an ad transition <laughs> now. So as everyone knows, or maybe are learning now, this is your first episode, 
We are sponsored by good things, and we are sponsored uh, most traditionally by the concept of the potato. But uh, I'm, I'm hearing that there might be some complications that we need to take into consideration. Because um, it sounds like, right, you have it as this colonial, well, robbed from the people of South America in a really devastating way, mm-hmm. introduced the people of Ireland in a really devastating way, but also provided a certain amount of resiliency because it doesn't burn totally. when you burn the crops. I mean, like everything in history, it's complicated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So so potatoes come actually all over Europe. Peasants mm-hmm. start eating potatoes. It's sort of hailed as, as a way to prevent famine, mm-hmm. which, as you will see, does not actually happen. But um, yeah, yeah, as to ch- a way to cheaply feed people who couldn't afford food in Europe. Um, and so it, it gets introduced. It really takes off in Ireland, though. But yeah, it is complicated, right? Because then... I think if we're going to talk about Irish nationalism, the, mm-hmm. there were many famines, but the Great Hunger, mm-hmm. um, which is what the Irish famine is typically called, I believe, within Ireland. Sorry to any Irish people if I'm getting that wrong. Um, but that, you know, that was a definitely an impact on on people wanting a independent Ireland, one of many impacts. And in that case, um, the lumper potato, which is the potato that started being grown all over Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not very tasty and it was not very resistant to um, sort of blight, which is what ended up happening. Okay. But it grew very quickly and it grew a lot. So it was really good for feeding people. Um, until it wasn't. Until it wasn't. And the famine actually hit. I didn't actually go back into this research when I wrote these notes, but it hit all over Europe, but it really hit Ireland badly because because of what I was talking about before, right, where people had been pushed off their land. They were basically only being able to grow potatoes and a few other crops. Mm-hmm. It was actually a bad idea to grow a garden where you would get like other delicious vegetables because that would be considered an improvement on your property and the landlord could raise the rent. Oh, my God. Above of what you uh-huh. could afford if yep. you would plant like a garden with like, you know, greens and tomatoes and I don't know, cabbage. Yeah. Kale. I'm trying to think of things that that Irish um, folks back then might plant. And they were also really easy to grow because they could be grown in lazy beds, which the Irish had grown crops in for 4,500 years. Um, and it was really oh, well adapted to Ireland's thin, wet soil. But of course, <laughs> the British didn't understand it and despised it because it didn't take enough work. The British were really getting <laughs> the Irish to, to uh-huh. be hardworking farmers. So once they were dug and planted, they needed little work. But this did allow the Irish peasants to have time for other tasks, um, which was really important since most of them also had a farmer work on behalf of their landlords. Um, and yeah, it wasn't so, it like they, gra- they, they, made, they grew potatoes for themselves and they grew everything else for export or to give to the landlords, pay rent? Totally, right. And that, so that's where the lumper comes in mm-hmm. um, because they could just produce a lot of it. And then I have some stuff about um, there was a population boom between 1700 and 1845 that drove mm-hmm. a demand for land, but there actually would have been enough if there weren't all these uh, huge landlords expropriating the land. And so instead, many people were forced into a system called the Con Acre, which was paying for the right to grow potatoes on a piece of land. Mm-hmm. And 41% of the Irish population didn't even have that. They consisted of landless laborers as of 1845, right? That's the first year of the famine. And Ireland was almost entirely agricultural, so land was super important. There wasn't a ton of industry there. And rents could be really, really high. Rents were 80 to 100% higher than in England. Okay. Whoa, shit. Even though it's way poorer. So basically, 
so but yeah, basically there's like just a really bad situation where people are forced into a system where they're paying to grow potatoes. I already mentioned the thing where they couldn't grow kitchen gardens. Mm-hmm. So once the blight gets hit, they're hit really bad. The English don't want to send aid because the Irish have a reputation for exaggerating. Um, and <laughs> as every like every like marginalized person is always yeah. like, you're not you're just complaining. You're just you're always complaining. Why are you always complaining? Just because you're starving to death. Every day, a new complaint. Yeah, totally. You didn't have food um, yesterday. Why are you complaining about food today? Same complaint you had yesterday. For sure. It's like they weren't working hard enough as their potatoes were like rotting in their fields. Yeah. Um, and they also, there were also a few people who made comments about it, like controlling the Irish population, um, which is a lot more nefarious. Um, okay. And then they had all these really, really silly ideas, like straining the rotting potatoes, baking them so the rotten part was baked off. None of these worked. They, like, sent um, corn. They wouldn't send grain because grain would mess with the market forces of the capitalist market. Mm-hmm. But they sent they sent flint corn. And the assumption was that, like in England, there'd be all these mills and they can mill the flint corn and mm-hmm. use it. But there weren't mills in Ireland, really, to the same What's extent. flint corn? I think it's, like, a hard corn. Okay. Um, That you would have to mill to make into, like, a corn meal. Okay. But I, whoever is listening should probably fact check me on that. So they couldn't mill it, so the English told them to boil it, which didn't really work. So basically, okay. they're sending useless food. Then you have other groups. You have Protestant groups who are um, starting soup kitchens, but you have to convert or attend services to receive the food, which uh-huh. gave rise to the phrase taking the soup. Um, but then we have our friends, <laughs> the Quakers, <laughs> uh-huh. Um who were some of the only people who set up relief efforts that weren't tied at all to like trying to convert people. Um, And some of them actually died from illnesses related to the famine doing the relief work. Mm -hmm. um, And their efforts saved thousands of lives. Sorry, I feel like I just went off onto this famine. No, I mean, this was like literally the plan. Uh, The reason, uh, for anyone who's listening, um, one of the reasons I had, (laughs) uh, I I wanted potato facts. And so Ren came up with hashtag potato facts. uh, But then they actually form an actual narrative about potatoes. So Yes. And then there were also funds that came in from all over the world, including Mexico, Venezuela, India, the Choctaw people, um, Russia, Italy, and beyond, individual yeah. British citizens, you know, people like Casement, I'm sure, even though he wasn't alive then. But, right, we have one million Irish people who died as a result of, of the Great Hunger and one million who immigrated um, because of it. And so the countryside was so emptied that I, I've never had a chance to go to Ireland, but I've read that even today— you can see the remnants of these lazy beds where people grew potatoes just like all over the landscape uh because they were like there were like cottages and farmhouses there and now it's just fields yeah Yeah. so um i think that's the end of my potato facts yeah (laughs) and i feel like that is like context to just like i think one of the problems i always struggled with with history is that you know, the dates didn't mean anything to me when I was younger before you could start connecting. Mm-hmm. The only point of knowing all the dates in history is so you can start seeing, you can start weaving the web and seeing the grander narrative. It's like mm-hmm. the dates are the points of connection because, and so it's worth thinking about the fact that he is, you know, his parents lived through the great hunger, um, mm-hmm. you know, and like, so this is the context that he's coming into is like, what was it? The population of Ireland went down by half or something like that. I I tried to look that up again. And all I found was that 2 million, the 1 million dead oh, okay. and 1 million immigrated. So I don't think it was quite half. Okay. But yeah. But yeah, so he's, I don't know. 
is important context both for Roger Casement and for fans of uh, this show's primary sponsor, Potatoes. We also uh, have other sponsors. Um, tap water, good, healthy, clean tap water is one of our sponsors. Um, Sophie, do you have any good sponsors? The concept of a always cool pillow. Mm. Ooh, yeah, that is a good concept. It's a good one. Um, and that is what we are sponsored by. Not any brand of cool cooling pillow. Uh, they, um, we are, however, accepting. Uh, <laughs> we are, however, accepting donations of cool pillows. <laughs> Never mind. We are. We are. Yeah. Uh, okay. Here's some advertisers. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury, with a reveal unlike any other, as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Okay, and we are back. And we are talking about how Roger Casement uh, is basically like getting really involved in not just Irish politics, but Irish culture. And actually at this point, primarily Irish culture, although also joined Sinn Féin, the Republican organization. And the rest of the movement, they're not as sure about him. Um, he's Protestant. He works for England. That's probably an even bigger deal mm -hmm. than the Protestant mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I would trust this guy. Um, but he, he doesn't care. Because he's not doing it for clout. He is doing what he believes is right. 
Uh, he's got a lot of ideas about chivalry. A lot of his writing is about chivalry. And he actually wrote about how imperialism was the death of chivalry. I would argue that there's problems in the, you know, traditional ideas of chivalry as well. But this is this is what's leading him. This is the fire inside of him that makes him do what's right. And he he's really into the the Fianna, these heavily mythologized bands of Irish warriors from the Iron Age and the early Middle Age. And I don't know. And so the thing that's really interesting to me about it, if I were into myth-making, and let's be real, I, I am, he is in his own way a knight. I mean, he ends up knighted later in the story. But, you know, if you understand knighthood myth- mythologically, right, the like, we are not sponsored by the concept of knighthood. I want to be clear about this. But the concept of knighthood divorced from the actual historical existence of knighthood does seem to be a, a, a motivating archetype in his life. So I've gone from calling him gay James Bond to, I don't know, gay Sir Gowan. I don't know the Knights of the Round Table. I'm a <laughs> fake geek. Okay, so he, in 1906, he, before I was just thinking about, I got lost thinking about swords. Um, always in the back of my mind. The bedrock of all Foss is swords and shields and armor. But in 1906, he's off overseas again. He's sent off overseas. And this time he goes to South America, to Brazil. He's there for three years. And in 1909, he goes deep into the Amazon in Peru to investigate a colonial operation that is using forced labor to extract rubber. It's basically his beat at this point is um, evil corporations that are using forced labor to extract rubber. It's just as bad as what he saw in the Congo. Uh, It's not at the same numerical scale, but it is just as bad in terms of the atrocities that are happening to people. It's just fucking evil. He writes a long report full of first-person accounts from the indigenous people who were actually who were being enslaved. People at the time, it was like kind of a big deal that he kept like using people's actual words, like letting them speak for themselves, you know? And his damning report comes out and the company is like, oh, sorry, we'll be better. But he doesn't give up. He goes back a year later and they are not better. So he starts campaigning against them. Uh, it, you know, a, a really quick overview is like, he writes these reports and things fall. But he writes these reports and then participates in large movements to drive public opinion and Im- impact, you know, the bottom line of these companies and stuff. And so this, he works with this international campaign for years uh, to, and he, he destroys the company or he participates in the campaign to destroy the company. Many, but not all the people involved in the bad shit get prosecuted. Um, and this whole story deserves more time than I'm giving it, but I can, I picked two of his many, many stories. I picked uh, the Congo, and I picked the Easter Rising. Um, this work makes him a, he's already like the most famous humanitarian in the world. He's now just a fucking hero. He gets knighted by England. And I'm a little surprised he accepted. Uh, he's not super keen on the English crown at this point. I fell down this rabbit hole of the like, there's like my favorite Wikipedia list is the list of people who've refused knighthood. <laughs> a ton of people have refused knighthood because they've been like, Either they're like, well, that's a little bit silly, isn't it? Or they've been like, no, I, I fucking hate you and everything you stand for. Why would I take knighthood? But he he accepts knighthood. Later, he tells his interrogators, because later he gets interrogated. He says that he accepted it because refusing it would have meant losing his job. Uh, and he couldn't afford to lose his job. Um, and I, I don't know, you know, I don't know exactly what that looked like to him. You know, but basically it was like, if I want to continue 
in the position that I've worked my entire life in this career. Uh, I can't if I refuse, if I start refusing mm-hmm. these commendations. So he's Sir Roger Casement. Sir Roddy. <laughs> Rod. Sex. Okay, so um, in 1913... Are you 12? <laughs> no, it's 13, 1913. Okay, anyway. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> so, uh, okay, he gets knighted, and in 1913, he retires. And he immediately sets about his new job. His new job is kicking the English the fuck out of Ireland. Uh, peacefully, if possible, with guns if necessary. That is the full of his, his uh, mission. In 1913, he and several other people found the Irish Volunteers, which is a military organization for the freedom of Ireland, uh, or at least the home rule of Ireland. There was some argument within the ranks about exactly what they were fighting for. You'll be shocked to know. And it was explicitly open to people regardless of class or religion. It wasn't quite a let's overthrow the government organization. Um, It saw itself as a counter to the loyalist militia, the the Ulster Volunteers, that was forming. And basically... uh, I don't know, take note, Americans, militias forming to counter other militias is a sign that trouble's coming, for better or worse. So you have these two, you know, so you have this uh, loyalist militia and this nationalist militia. Um, And the Ulster militia is well-funded and shit, and so they have a lot of advantages. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Ulster militia does this whole thing where they, like, smuggle in a bunch of guns and they send guns to, like, every fucking loyalist in the country uh, totally illegally, and no one's trying to stop them. So the Irish volunteers are like, well, we need guns too. So Roger Caseman, he's like organizing large things that involve international things. I'm your guy. And so he and several others, including a, a, an American-born Irish woman named Molly Childers, mm-hmm. who I'm literally just name dropping. So we're not passing the Bechdel test right now. Um, this entire episode has so many men in it. Yeah. But there's some women involved. Um, yeah, it was almost an all-male episode, but... Uh... Yeah. But I guess we're not men. Yeah, that that helps. And then and then we have Molly Childers. Yeah, is that yeah. her name. Cool. Yeah, who is mostly written in all the history books as Mrs. Ermin Childers, mostly known by her fucking husband's name because he was involved too. But so was goddamn she. Um, I don't know. I, I I was thinking about this and I was like, <laughs> there is also, and maybe it's bad, but I'm like, I think when you write about gay men in history, there's also a, a certain amount of like, um. I don't know. I'm not trying to get myself off the hook for this. This Okay, whatever. Anyway. It happens. So yeah. Molly and Roddy, they're like, let's buy some guns from, some, from the Germans and who are not yet at war with all of Europe. And so they raise a bunch of money through various means, including Casement just giving up all his money always. I literally don't understand how he like ate food. Um, he's always giving up all of his money. Um, and he raises money through his connections and they do all these like fundraisers, uh, practically like bake sales to buy us some fucking rifles. And um, and they buy 1,500 black powder rifles from Germans, which are completely obsolete weapons. Uh, and these are some of the weapons that later get used in the Rising. Um, and when they show up to buy them, they're like, no, these aren't for a... We're not planning to violently evict the English from our own country. They're for Mexico. And they smuggle them over to Ireland. And this this part is not casement. This is Molly. And some other people. Mm, mm-hmm. And they they smuggle them over to Ireland on two personal yachts owned by Irish nationalists, including one yacht that was called the Asgard, which means it is the second 
Germanic paganism reference in a show about Ireland and the Congo. Um, and I'm excited that the Germanic pagan reference shows up on the good side in this case. Mm-hmm. The yachts are so full of guns that the crew had to like throw out all their food and shit and they literally sleep on top of guns. Whoa. Uh, they go through storms and at one point they sail through an entire fleet of English ships. And you can just imagine it in the movie. It's the part where everything's like really silent as the little personal yacht moves through all the warships, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and they succeed. They they land the yachts in the middle of the day very intentionally, right? The the Ulster volunteers, they, they snuck it in at night and they were like, as far as I could tell, they're like, fuck you, this is our country. We're doing this in the middle of the fucking day. They land as close to Dublin as they can. Um, and when they show up, there's a crowd and the fucking people running the docks were a bunch of snitch asses. And so they call the cops and the cops come. The crowd riots and it drives back the cops by throwing stones, uh, maybe shotguns towards the cops. No one mm, seems to mm-hmm. have been injured during this part of it. Um, but they drive the cops off. The cops only manage to confiscate like 19 of the rifles. And then a judge makes them give them back later anyway. Just cool. Um, and the rest of, you know, so the, the the guns are all secreted away by the revolutionaries and hidden. And then the crowd makes a mistake. The crowd follows the cops to basically follow them down the street and laugh at them. It's just like, yeah, like, fuck you, cops. So the cops open fire and run uh, in with bayonets and injure yeah. 38 people yeah, and kill four like people. Cops. Yeah. Yeah. And they... Ins- so four people die, 38 people get injured, and it incites more nationalist fervor. Um, the operation is overall a success. I don't know how the four people would feel about it. Probably actually okay with it. And the guns are whisked off to be hidden in a Catholic school run by revolutionaries because Ireland. Mm-hmm. It's 1914, and there's this important thing that happens in 1914. Speaking of the dates mattering and them being the things that yeah. intersect and connect everything, World War I starts. Yep. Uh, in which Germany decides to go declare war and stuff. Um, this isn't a World War I cast. The Irish are like, fuck yeah, Britain's going to be busy. It's time to fucking go. Some of them. The, yeah. The Irish volunteers actually end up split. Uh, the overwhelming majority of them change their name to the National Volunteers and are like, we must go defend Germ- uh, fight against Germany. Um. And then there's like this whole thing and there's this whole falling out. And it basically means that the radicals kind of take control, the, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, the IRB, mm-hmm. kind of take control of the Irish volunteers. And then a lot of the national volunteers like kind of come sulking back and are like, never mind, can we come back? And they're like, yeah, but the radicals are kind of more in charge. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And so this kind of like lays a lot of the groundwork um, for, well, for Ireland to do its thing where it sort of gets independent later. Mm-hmm. Um. Casement, in the meantime, I think he's actually in New York City when the war breaks out because he's like, all right, we need guns and money. I'm going to do the thing where I travel around the world and sleep with people and get guns and money. Um, mm-hmm. And so he goes to New York and he, um, his contact there is an Irish guy named John Devoy. And he says, practical politics, he did not understand. He was an idealist, absolutely without personal ambition, ready to sacrifice his interests and his life for the cause he had at heart. But he was too sensitive about the consequences to others of his actions. Which, again, like, people keep saying this shit about Caseman as if people are, oh, he's a softy. And I'm like, good. I like him more because he actually thinks about the impact of his actions. Like, 
Um, totally. And I don't know, whatever. Um, and now that he's done working for the British, I just like him unreservedly at this point. So he also meets with a German diplomat and they, he, they smuggles himself into wartime Germany uh, from Norway. And the crown tries to get his companion, his traveling companion to snitch him out, offering uh, in today's money the equivalent of millions of pounds. But his companion refuses, quite possibly because Casement and his traveling companion were dating. But no one knows. Mm. But you know what else no one knows about? The good stuff that supports this podcast. Like, well, see, now I just feel so complicated about the concept of potatoes. I think that the con, it's okay. Like, I think that that really reflects how history is always complicated. You know? Yeah. Like, okay. I, I love potatoes. Yeah. I'm probably going to eat potatoes later, you know? Yeah. All this, right. The, this, this podcast is sponsored by the concept of fuzzy socks that make your feet just warm enough, but not too oh, warm. Yeah. And give you that nice little cushion that makes you feel like you're getting a hug on your feet. Yeah. You're welcome, listeners, for that description. Ads. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. 
Okay, and we are back, and we are talking about Casement, who's now a spy again. And this time he's like actually, um, you know, in a country that's at war with the country that ostensibly rules him. He mm-hmm. has smuggled himself into wartime Germany during World War One to try to get the military aid of the enemy power. I can't figure out why anyone thought he was a traitor. I mean, I think he rules, um, but like, you know, whatever. I could see how this looks badly. So he has three goals. In- so he's trying mm-hmm. to get Germany to help the Irish fight the English. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, yeah, he, he has three goals. He wants German recognition for an independent Ireland. He wants an Irish brigade made up of the prisoners of war in Germany, basically all of the people that have been captured in World War I, all the Irish people who are fighting for Britain, Great Britain um, okay. or for the UK or whatever. And, and he wants tons of guns. Those are his three goals. He, he has this fuck-off plan where he's going to raise the Irish brigade, right? Uh, and so the Germans start treating the Irish prisoners better, and they start keeping them in one place so that he can go and like proselytize to them, basically. This does not work. The Irish prisoners of war are like, are you fucking kidding me, you traitor piece of shit? Um, Only 51 of the 2,000 or so uh, agree to join an Irish brigade. It could be that they were motivated by, if we do this, we'll get hanged. It could be that they got motivated by, we don't want to do that. We were loyalists all along. There's, it could be they were like, we were literally just fighting against the Germans. It doesn't feel good to switch sides. I can't even blame the people who didn't join his idea. Um, but so this plan fails. Except he gets 51. He's a 51 strong Irish brigade. He gets German recognition, sort of. Germany's like, I'll tell you what, we'll write a statement that's like, if we come to Ireland, it will be to free you and recognize you as an independent nation and not to conquer you. Um, which is sort of the best he can get. And he gets another boat full of rifles. This time it's 20,000 Mosin-Nagants, which are not obsolete at this point, and 10 machine guns, uh, which is not nearly what he was hoping to get. And he is depressed. He has He's there for a year and a half doing all of this work. And he gets this sort of pittance from his point of view. Um, he also knows that if this plan fails, he's going to die. Like, he's just like, this is, this is the death of me. And as the plan mm, is continuing to not succeed, because his only real hope of surviving at this point is to win, right? Uh, to mm, show up mm-hmm. with a, a brigade and guns and kick out the English. And that, that's, that's the only way he's getting out of this alive. So he spends a year and a half being like, I'm dead. This is it. And he goes about his work anyway. Um, and writing in his journal about how he wishes he was dead and being very depressed. But he, and he finds out about the Easter Rising while he's there, right? Mm. Um, and I'm going to cover the Easter Rising at one point, like in more detail one of these days, because I get really excited about it because my, my family fought in it. I met my great uncle who, who fought in it. Uh, maybe a bunch of my great uncles did, but I'm not sure. So, but the Germans agree to smuggle him back before the rising. Um, And he mostly wants to show up at this point. He wants to show up and be like, don't do it yet. We didn't get the stuff that would make it work. You know, and he's like hoping to get home in time to postpone it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Germany still sends the guns and they send him back. And he, he decides not to take his Irish brigade with him. They offer him to bring his 51 people back. But he's like, no, the rising is doomed. It is... It's, I will go back mm-hmm. and tell them. And by doing so, he, he actually saves the lives of 
the Irish Brigade. Um, they might have been mad about it, though. I don't know. They might have been like, whatever, we'll yeah. go fucking do it anyway. I think that some of them show up to his state funeral like 40 years later. Uh, we'll get to that. So the gun smuggling. Let's talk about the gun smuggling. It did not go well. Uh, to be clear, nothing is going to go well for the rest of his life at this point. Mm-hmm. The German ship disguises itself as the Odd Norg, a Norwegian neutral ship. This is probably why it failed, Sophie, is that it was Norwegian and the Norwegian government, um, they kill walruses. Mm-hmm. Trash. Yeah. Um, except all the sailors on board were actually German. Um, and they had all of their stuff, like their uniforms and their books and everything. And the, German, the German government has never done anything, you know, bad, right? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay, cool. Just, just we would have heard about it, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, or done podcasts about it. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, that's the main way that people know about things, for sure. Yeah, the one thing that I can admit that American history does, or <laughs> American educational does system does teach people about. <laughs> It'd be clear for anyone, you know, this is World War One Germany, who are not great, right? But it's not. We're not some of the Nazis. So, the ship, the Odd Norg, or the fake Odd Norg, they. They go sailing off with a whole bunch of guns, but the English had intercepted some communications that, and were on the lookout. And even worse, they completely just fucked up the rendezvous point. They just like got the wrong rendezvous point. And so this whole thing falls apart. They get there and they get to the wrong one and basement's not there. And so they're like, huh. And they just hang out for a couple days. And then the, the English are like, hey, buddy, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, no, we're caught. And they scuttle the ship. And scuttle is a very fun word to say. Ren, do you want to try saying the word scuttle? Scuttle? Yeah. Yeah. Sophie, do you want to? Scuttle, 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 mm-hmm. scuttle. <laughs> scuttle. Oh, I was just going to say, I also kind of uh, felt the need to say it like many times. Yeah. So I might have I might have covered Sophie up accidentally. Well, it's okay. It's, a, it's such a but, good word. Um, which yeah. It's when you blow up your own ship. I love that there's a verb for blow up your own ship. Whoa. Okay. Um. So they they had preset explosives that are like if we get caught we'll blow up our own ship. They they surrender and then they set off the the scuttle. I don't think it's a noun. They scuttle their ship with explosives. Um, mm-hmm. And the the these people who had tried to bring guns to the Irish become POWs. And as for Casement, the Germans smuggle him back on in a U boat, which is a submarine, a few days before the rising. They show up to the rendezvous point, but the boat's not there. So they're like, well, that's bad. But the U-boat captain is like, I'm not going to hang out here for days. Good luck. See you later. And he like kicks them out in a rowboat. He has two other buddies with him at this point. Uh, and the U-boat fucks off. They rowed ashore. Later, he wrote his sister about landing back in Ireland. When I landed in Ireland that morning, about 3 a.m., swamped and swimming ashore on, on an unknown strand, I was happy for the first time for over a year. Although I knew that this fate waited on me, this fate being the fact that he's, he's writing this while he's waiting to be killed. Um, although I knew that this fate waited on me, I was for one brief spell happy and smiling once more. I cannot tell you what I felt. The sandhills were full of skylarks rising in the dawn, the first I had heard in years. The first sound I had heard through the surf was their song as I waded through the breakers, and they kept rising all the time up to the old wrath at Kershon, where I stayed and sent the others on, and all around were primroses and wild violets and the singing of the skylarks in the air, and I was back in Ireland again. So he's happy to be home. Mm-hmm. Locals saw them, and they're a bunch of fucking snitch-ass uh, 
We are zero for two for the coastal Irish people in this story for not being snitches. Um, they call the cops and Casement is caught. He was taken to England, thrown in the Tower of London. He went to some other prisons in the meantime, but the Tower of London is the one that I recognize the name of, so I'm sticking with that one. While he was waiting for trial, he twice, twice tried to kill himself. Uh, once he took poison that he had smuggled with him because uh, he's James Bond. Um, but it was the kind that needed to be introduced through blood. And so he like broke his own spectacles. We, he did not succeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next time he swallowed nails. Um, that wow. also did not kill him. Yeah. He gets put on trial for treason. It's a three or four day trial. It's prosecuted by Edward Carson, who's the same absolute fuck of an anti-Irish asshole, but previously prosecuted future friend of the pod, gay Irish anarchist icon, Oscar Wilde. Mm-hmm. Um, so he gets the same fucking prosecutor as Oscar Wilde. Casement wants to defend himself because half of the people on this show want to defend themselves. That's like a running theme. His friends talk him out of it. Um, it probably wouldn't have mattered in the end. George Bernard Shaw, an Irish socialist and playwright, was supporting him and offered to write him a speech if he did defend himself. And incidentally, while we're on the subject of people refusing knighthood, Shaw refused a knighthood. Um, he hated all awards. And once in 1925, he was set to refuse the Nobel Prize in literature. But his wife <laughs> was like, you fucking asshole. You need to accept that it, for Ireland. It, you, if you're not doing it for yourself, do it for Ireland. Um, so George Bernard Shaw listened to his wife and accepted the Nobel Prize in literature in 1925. Anyway. He was the one that, wait, can I yeah, interject? Yeah, no, please. He was the one that wrote, um, I mean, he's written a lot of things, mm-hmm. but he wrote the play about Joan of Arc, right? St. Joan? I will take your word for it. I do not know. I I think that he did. Um, it's it's a cool play, um, speaking of queer icons. That's cool. Uh, there's, yes, St. Joan by George Bernard Shaw. That's cool. Um, there's a lot of, Joan of Arc is one of those people where some people will be like, she definitely wasn't queer. And then uh, there's a lot of evidence that she was certainly gender nonconforming. Yeah. Um, I feel like that part's hard to argue so. with. Yeah, at the very least. Wasn't a big, like, stick to your gender lane. Yeah. Uh, um, Person. Yeah. yeah. But it's a good, I, I, I've I seen a filmed version of the play. It's good. Okay. No, I, I, I want to cover Joan of Arc at some point on this show. I don't know when. And so I'm excited if I get to watch a, a Shaw play in the process. I like the people who, like, weave through. I don't know whether I'll ever, like, specifically talk about Shaw or something. But I like the people who, like, weave in and out of the background mm-hmm. of all these stories. So Casement, he's accused of violating the 1351 Treason Act. It's hard to imagine being accused of breaking a law that's like 600 years old or whatever, 500 years old at this point, Um, Mm -hmm. 650 years, whatever. And he's the first knight of the realm to be tried for treason in centuries, which also really goes with the whole like chivalry mythologized thing from my point of view. Mm -hmm. His defense, he had two defenses. There was the one that he liked and there was the one that his lawyer liked and they used both. His defense was, Fuck you, I'm not fucking English. It's not fucking treason, and I would do it again. Um, mm-hmm. He said it a little bit more nicely sometimes and a little bit kind of almost like that. I don't think he cussed very much. But his other defense that his lawyer was more fond of was that the act, the treason act, was ambiguously written. It was written in French, like old French or something. I don't know, 1351 French. Yeah. And it, it, um, it didn't have any punctuation in it. Uh. <laughs> so if you wanted, you could read it as basically you could you could read it as 
it's only treason if it happens in England or the United Kingdom. Or you could read it as anything that impacts England, no matter where it happens. It's just literally depending on where you'd want to put a comma, um, Mm -hmm. which at the time there was no comma. And so where to put commas killed him. Uh, Later, awaiting death, he wrote, God deliver me from such antiquaries as these to hang a man's life upon a comma and throttle him with a semicolon. Um, I think he was a good poet. Sometimes. Yeah. Some of the stuff you're reading from him is actually very beautiful. Oh, his pro it's funny because like yeah, all yeah. of his prose is beautiful. And and I and whatever. Like his poetry is actually fine. I think people are snobs. Mm-hmm. Um I mean um, whatever anyway. So Roger Casement knows his days are up. Uh, a month earlier, the other prisoners from the rising had all been executed. And so on the stand he said, Where all your rights become only an accumulated wrong where men must beg with bated breath for leave to subsist in their own land, to think their own thoughts, to sing their own songs, to garner the fruits of their own labors. And even while they beg to see these things inexorably drawn from them, then surely it is a braver, a saner, and a truer thing to be a rebel in act and deed against such circumstance as this than tamely to accept it as the natural lot of men. And he also said, I think in the same speech, Ireland that has wronged no man, that has injured no land, that has sought no dominion over others. Ireland is treated today among the nations of the world as if she was a convicted criminal. If it be treason to fight against such unnatural fate as this, then I am proud to be a rebel, and I shall cling to my rebellion with the last drop of my blood. Because um, he's fucking cool. That's, that's, uh, mm-hmm. A ton of people came out to support him. They're like, this is our guy. This is the guy who fucking brought down Leopold. He's a knight. Like, we, we shouldn't there be like some leniency? He's like our guy, right? Uh, Joseph Conrad, his old friend, disavows him as a traitor and is like, no, no, not our guy. But fuck Joseph Conrad anyway. Um, yeah. H.G. Wells, who I always, history remembers him as a socialist, but he was super anti-Irish. And when asked to sign a petition on Casement's behalf, he wrote back, certainly not. He ought to be hung. A whole bunch of literary and scientific types around Europe and the U.S. signed a petition for him, though, and at least one black American organization organized its own petition for his freedom, saying they couldn't stand aside while someone who had done so much for Africans was hanged. And so all of the work he had done was like, you know, thinking about saving him or whatever. But so the British crown had one ace up its sleeve to silence his support. They're called the Black Diaries, in contrast to his other Mm. diaries, the White Diaries. they release Casement's secret diaries to the press, the ones that talk about sex. He's not a traitor. He's a gay traitor. All mm. the notes about the sex he had, about the size of every dick that he took. The public support dies down. Uh, one write-up on the gay website, Romeo.com, argues that part of this was that worse than just being gay, he was a bottom. If he'd fucked Native men in the places he went, he could have been forgiven, but he was fucked by Native men. And it was just a step too far for everyone. You know, it's like the worst degeneracy. He's an invert. He's blah, 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 blah. And I want to I point out a specific contrast that came up to me while researching this. In the, in the context, now we live in this atmosphere where grooming is accusing LGBT folks, especially trans people of grooming is back in style, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't read the whole Black Diaries. I read a bunch of excerpts from them and I've read some analysis of them. He sleeps with young men and, and people he calls boys. I don't exactly know what that means. Um, But at one point, he's talking about sleeping with someone he considered very young, who was 18. 
And in contrast, you have King Leopold II, who's using money from the Congo to literally buy a season pass to an English brothel that provides him girls as young as 10. And so this is the degeneracy. This is the, the whatever. I, I doubt anyone mm-hmm. who's listening to this is like anti-gay or whatever, but it just, it really sticks out to me that, um, I don't know, whatever. I get real mad about it. <laughs> yeah. And the whole Black Diaries thing is controversial even today. Uh, a lot of the Irish people, uh, a lot of Irish rebels are like, these are forgeries. Absolutely. There's no way that our guy did this. And there are historians who still believe that they're forgeries. Um, sometimes they're like, no one can have that much sex. And every like gay historian that I listen to about it is like, or read about it is like, what? <laughs> yeah, you can. <laughs> what are you talking about? I think they're real. I acknowledge I have a lot of bias here. Um, but they had only three weeks between his arrest and his trial to create the forgeries. And they're full of phrases from like way upriver in Congo that would have been really hard for a forger to come up with, including like mm. inside gay Congo slang. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, whatever. Um, I would like him even if he was secretly straight this whole time. Uh, on August 2nd, 1916, the day before his execution, Roger Casement converts to Catholicism. Uh, when I first started researching this, I assumed it was like a final fuck you to England, but but he meant it. The more I understood Roger Casement and also read about his conversion in more detail, he he did nothing out of spite. Um, he he was always earnest, I, literally to a fault. Um, he went back and forth for months trying to decide what he believed on the eve of his death, like what he should do, and he he, um, he converted to Catholicism. On, on August 3rd, oh, and there's this whole thing where like a lot of parts of the English church didn't, or the Catholic church didn't want to let him convert to Catholicism because he was this terrible, mm. you know, gay person or whatever, right? Um, and then like Irish Catholic priests were like, what are you fucking, the whole point of Catholicism is you can forgive people for shit, you know? Um, I don't think there's anything to forgive, but whatever. August 3rd, 1916, he was hanged at 52 years old. Uh, after taking mass for the, the first and last time in his life. One convict who saw him march through the prison said he had a, a visible aura around him. The priest who attended him said basically like, this guy's a saint. We should be praying. Uh, we shouldn't be praying for him. We should be praying to him. His executioner said he was the bravest man I ever killed. Um, again, this is all in mythologizing. Mm-hmm. But I also don't have any reason to doubt these particular accounts um and he was the last of the rising prisoners to die and he was the only one who was murdered outside of ireland his last wish which was communicated to his sister was that he be buried in a in the graveyard of a chapel on merlot bay in county antrim which is currently in northern ireland Mm -hmm. Um, and he begged for a christian burial instead his body was thrown unceremoniously into a pit in the prison yard in an unmarked grave and covered with quicklime to decay it quickly it took 50 years before his remains were moved back to Ireland in the 1960s, where he was buried in a state funeral um, and attended by 30,000 people. But his remains were granted to Ireland under the specific condition that he not be allowed to be buried in Northern Ireland because um, it's still part of the UK. And so wow, his last wish literally can't be fulfilled um, mm-hmm. until Ireland is united. Yeah. Shortly after he died in 1918, a Dublin press called Talbot Press put out a chapbook of his poetry. And the introduction is like, Roger Casement wasn't a poet. 
<laughs> um, they're they're perfectly passable poems. They're okay, you know. Yeah, they don't like linger in the brain forever necessarily, but they're like they're fine. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like Ireland is also an island of poet. Like it oh, is totally. like I feel like different cultures have different sort of strengths and. There is a long tradition of oral and written poetry in that country. So I could imagine even a decent poet. They're like, eh, not good enough, you know? No, that makes a lot of sense. Go I ahead. hadn't thought about it from that point yeah. of view. Yeah. Um, actually, Yeats writes a poem about him that's really good. I'm not a huge fan of Yeats on like, you know, some like political levels and stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, but I totally really like some of his poetry. And he wrote a, a poem called Roger Casement is Beating at the Door. That's basically just about the horrors that continue. And the ghost of Roger Casement is like, here to haunt all of that. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, okay, and as a final vignette about his legacy, I'm going to quote the least academic source I will ever quote. The comments of a YouTube video. <laughs> but hear me out. There's this video called The Execution of Roger Casement on YouTube. It's a historian talking about his execution. And the comments are really interesting to me. One person says, he was my great-great-uncle, and I'm very proud. Another person says, my grandfather is an Irishman who helped, I'm paraphrasing here, my grandfather is an Irishman who helped capture him and was forced to testify against him. Another is an Englishman who says he was a traitor, he got what he deserved. And then the final comment, well, not the final comment, but in this, in this interesting string is a Congolese person who says he is one of the two men who saved my country from Leopold, uh, the other being the journalist moral. And I just think that's like those four perspectives of him are really interesting to me. And that's how people view him. He's a traitor or a hero. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's easy for me to pick. Totally. Um, yeah. I don't know. What would you pick? Saint. <laughs> what would I pick? I'm like the worst person to ask okay. this because I'm like, well, he's definitely not a traitor, mm -hmm. obviously. But I feel like he's a complicated character. Oh, totally. Right? And so it's hard for me to say he's 100% a hero. But earlier you said... Some people thought he was a saint. Some people thought he was a fool. And it kind of feels like maybe he's both, you know? Yeah. And all the complexity yeah. of that. Yeah. But definitely someone that, like, I'm really glad I know about now, you know, and who did some really interesting, yeah. really amazing things. Yeah, he, like, almost, like, stumbled by having this, like, very strong moral compass. He, like, stumbled out of a really bad thing he was doing and into, like, better directions. Mm, he didn't mm -hmm. succeed. Actually, he succeeded a lot of stuff, right? Because I think people like will focus on like, oh, he he failed at the like raising the Irish Brigade, and I'm like, this motherfucker did way more than anyone I have ever met, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but no, you're right, and like, and and I never want to. If I ever present a truly uncomplicated hero, I should be uh, yeah, I should be totally. fired, and someone else should take this job. Um, but no, I don't know. Yeah. I think that those, yeah, those comments really sum it up. Well, uh, the YouTube comments that you uh, that you shared. Yeah, yeah. I was like so surprised when I ran across that, and I was just like, "Oh, this feels really telling," you know, mm -hmm. just like mm -hmm. these four perspectives. Um, and yeah, well, that and his, mm -hmm. yeah. I was just gonna say, like, I feel like this. This is like a zooming out into like how history is told, right? Because so many people, especially these characters that are minor figures in the grander historical narrative, mm -hmm. are constantly contested. I yeah. don't know. 
Sorry. You can cut that out. But yeah, that's just. <laughs> yeah. No, totally. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and it took a long time. Like he was basically like kind of like cut out of martyrdom for a long time because of his homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. And then like some people like, I don't know, there's just so many ways people talk about him. He's such an easy figure to to um, believe things about, you know? Totally. Um, and yeah. either like see yourself in or see as this like archetype of good or bad or, um, yeah, I don't know. The gay Irish knight who was more of a mythological knight than a English one and is the world is better for that. Totally. <laughs> well, uh, you have any books coming out that people could read if they want to know more about food and good <laughs> potato facts? Um, I actually don't think there are any potato facts in the anthology, unfortunately. Pasta facts? Um, there are not actually any pasta facts either. I, I ran um, out of food. Pa- yeah. Those are the two foods. I know. I'm trying to. Well, there is um, there's a really am- amazing piece on the women rice workers of northern Italy. Oh, rice. That's um, also food. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's in it that I did not write. I'm just the editor of the anthology, um, but it's called Nourishing Resistance, Stories of Food Protest and Mutual Aid. Um, and it'll be coming out from PM Press sometime in 20, early-ish 2023. But it's available for um, pre-order now? It should be available for pre-order now. Hooray. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sophie, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, check out... Uh, Hood Politics by Prop on the Cool Zone Media Network wherever you get your podcast. And um, buy, buy, buy both Ren and Margaret's books, please. Yeah. We will and see we'll you soon. Week. Yep. That's what this is what Sophie said. Bye, everyone. Bye. Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com. Or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. You can rent a car, a house, even that little black party dress. So why not rent the stuff you need for your home, too? The place to do it is errands. Choose from thousands of new products from the brands you love, online or in store. Pick a payment plan that fits your budget and pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. But if life changes, you can return it anytime or even upgrade it with something new. Rent what you need. It's better at errands. Approval not guaranteed. Restrictions apply. See store for details.